Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Writer Cardewan Terrell writes in her new memoir, Part Wild, Caught Between the Worlds of Wolves and Dogs. I grew up loving dogs, she says. Then by chance, at a particularly sad and frightening time in my life, I met an animal labeled Wolf Dog and decided that only a wolf dog could be the kind of companion I was looking for. Bart Wilde is the story of Cardewan Terrell's journey with a, a creature whose heart is divided between her bond to one woman and her need to roam free. And uh, in the end, Terrell must confront the reality of what she has done by trying to tame a part wild animal. Part wild is a memoir of the beauty and tragedy of living with a measure of wildness. Part wild is the memoir. Kurdwan Terrell is my guest for the hour following the news. From NPR News in Washington, I'm Paul Brown. The Justice Department will ask a federal court in Texas to require the state to get pre-approval for voting changes because of its history of discrimination. NPR's Carrie Johnson reports on the first federal action after the Supreme Court threw out a key provision of the Voting Rights Act. Attorney General Eric Holder says last month's Supreme Court ruling is flawed. Speaking to an audience at the National Urban League in Philadelphia, Holder says plenty of states, including Texas, have a proven history of discriminating against minorities at the ballot box, and they should be forced to get federal approval before making election changes. The Justice Department's weighing in on a case that involves Texas redistricting maps. A special court found last year that the state had intentionally discriminated against minorities. And Holder wants to use another part of the Voting Rights Act to make sure Texas remains under a form of federal oversight. The Attorney General says this move marks the first but by no means the last federal action on voting rights. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. Federal prosecutors are charging the hedge fund SAC Capital Advisors with making hundreds of millions of dollars in illegal profits through insider trading. And they want SAC to forfeit the money. A lawsuit also filed today calls for SAC to pay penalties for money laundering. SAC Capital has not immediately responded to a request for comment. President Obama delivers a speech today at the port in Jacksonville, Florida. NPR's Ari Shapiro reports this is part of a national tour the president is taking to promote his economic message. Each event on this tour is designed to deliver a different message on the economy. He'll do a speech on education, one on housing, manufacturing, and so on. In a pair of events in Illinois and Missouri, Obama laid out his vision of the economy in broad terms. If we don't make investments in education and manufacturing and science and research and transportation and information networks, we will be waving the white flag while other countries forge ahead in the global economy. Today in Jacksonville, the president will talk about infrastructure. He argues that if America doesn't upgrade its ports to accommodate new supertankers, those tankers will take their cargo elsewhere. Ari Shapiro, NPR News, traveling with the president. Spain is in shock following the most deadly train wreck in decades. A passenger train in the northwest derailed in mountainous territory. 78 people are dead, at least 140 hurt. Reporter Lauren Freyer says the area around Santiago de Compostela was preparing for a major religious and cultural festival. That train was probably packed with people heading to Galicia for this festival. It's a regional holiday there. It draws tourists from all over Spain as well as all over the world. All of those celebrations have now been canceled as a sign of mourning. Reporter Lauren Freyer in Spain. This is NPR News. 
Support for NPR comes from the Cy Sims Foundation, supporting advances in science, education, and the arts since 1985. org. With Utah News This Hour, I'm Carrie Bringhurst. A new research study shows that oil and gas companies have leased more than 38 million acres of public land and that there's no need for them to target other parcels that adjoin national parks in areas with wilderness, historic, and recreation values. The Wilderness Society report names a dozen locations in eight states it says are, quote, too wild to drill, and Utah is home to two of them, Arches National Park and Desolation Canyon. Not a culver with the Wilderness Society says 25 million acres of the land currently leased has not been developed. That's a lot of land about the size of the state of Florida that they're sitting on. That is public land that belongs to everyone, and it's not being produced, but it's being tied up, and it is a concern here and everywhere else. Culver says the BLM in Utah has instituted a master leasing plan process and is doing a better job than some states of balancing multiple uses on the land and agency controls. However, in her words, it is a, quote, ongoing struggle to ensure that priorities, priorities rather, other than energy development, are receiving fair consideration. Authorities are providing more details about a Denver woman who died earlier this month while hiking in temperatures near 100 degrees in southern Utah. Garfield County Sheriff's deputies say the 35-year-old Cindy So had been hiking with a friend on July 4th near Spooky Gulch when So began struggling in the heat. The Salt Lake Tribune reports So's friend left her about a quarter mile from the trailhead to fetch water and to seek help. The friend returned to find so unconscious and did perform CPR. That's Utah News. I'm Carrie Bringhurst. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Festival Opera and Musical Theater in Logan through August 10th. Follow Joseph as he is sold into Egypt in the celebrated musical Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Zany, big, and boisterous. Information at utahfestival.org. Today's broadcast of Access Utah is an encore presentation of a show that was previously recorded in December 2012. However, you can still comment on today's presentation at upraccess at gmail.com. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Writer Kirtuan Terrell writes in her new memoir, uh, Part Wild, I grew up loving dogs, and then by chance, at a particularly sad and frightening time in my life, met an animal labeled wolf dog and decided that only a wolf dog could be the kind of companion I was looking for. Part Wild is the unforgettable story of uh, her journey with the creature whose heart is divided between her bond to one woman and her need to roam free. It's a memoir of beauty and tragedy of living with a measure of wildness. By the end, Cardo Terrell must confront the reality of what she has done by trying to tame a part wild animal. Driven to understand the differences between dogs and wolves, she spent five years interviewing genetics experts, wolf biologists, dog trainers, and wolf rescuers in the United States, Germany, Hungary, Sweden, and Russia. And uh, the results uh, make this uh, not only memoir, but uh, science and uh, our need for wild, the differences between dogs and wolves. Kurdwan Terrell joins me uh, from, I believe, uh, Portland. Uh, Welcome to the program. Thank you so much. Good to be with you. Am I pronouncing your first name anywhere close to right? Yes, you certainly are. It's Caridwin. Caridwin. Okay. Yep. Um, and uh, I understand that uh, you uh, you do get out into the to the wilderness, including uh, some climbing in Utah. That's correct. I I love to be out in the wilderness. It's a 
my preferred uh, habitat, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> and you live sort of in an urban wild interface there in, in Portland. I do. I live actually up on the spine, the Tualatin Mountains that are just above the city of Portland, Oregon. And it's a, it's a 5,000 acre urban forested park where we have coyotes and beaver. We have a resident herd of elk. Very wild, yet only 10 minutes from downtown. Mm-hmm. Yeah, l- lucky. And, <laughs> it's pretty amazing. And you teach at Concordia College. I do, yes. They're, they're in, uh, in Portland. Well, it's a very interesting uh, memoir, and, and uh, you reveal a lot of yourself in this book. Uh, and, of course, a lot of this is about Inyo, your, your uh, wolf-dog hybrid, and a lot of science here about what the difference is between wolves and, and dogs. What, what was your purpose in, in writing the book? Well, I wanted to understand the mysteries that I was living with in Inyo. I could not figure out why some of the things that she would do, why she was so driven. Uh, for example, you know, I learned that wolves, quite naturally, pure wolves in the wild, travel between 30 and 50 miles a day with ease. And a typical wolf pack can have a territory of up to 360 square miles. So when Inyo was progressively maturing, she had this desire to, to roam that could not be curbed. Even as much time as we spent in the wilderness, of course, we always had to come back home, which was very, very hard for her. And I wanted to understand why, why does she need to go, go, go all the time? And that's because of that wolf part of her. They're designed for pretty much constant movement. Hmm. And uh, part of this is you're trying to understand, many people try to understand the differences between dogs and wolves, understanding that uh, dogs are... Our subspecies come come from the same place wolves do, but, but it gets to gets to a very important question, doesn't it? This difference. It, it does. You know, we we hear that dogs descended from gray wolves, but let me say, we have to be careful with that statement because when we say that dogs descended from gray wolves, most people visualize the modern gray wolf and. Honestly, it would be more accurate to say that dogs and wolves share a common ancestor. So they're sister species. The ancestor of the dog most likely did not look and probably did not behave like a modern gray wolf. So we have to be pretty careful with that. We can't just look at dogs as domesticated versions of the wolf. It's so much more complex than that. And I'll give you an example. If you, if you look at, at the brain chemistry of wolves and dogs, their hormonal levels are so different. So dogs have a higher level of serotonin, what we call that happy hormone. That's the relax and chill out hormone, the dog that will lay at your feet while you work at your desk. Whereas wolves have a higher level of cortisol, which is the fight or flight hormone. That is a, an incredibly important hormone for surviving in the wild. That keeps them alert. It it keeps them safe uh, because there's a lot going on in the wild. But if you take that cortisol and try to put it in a human household, it's pretty tough (laughs) for that animal to relax. Everything is frightening. And so to give you an example with Inyo, I rearranged the furniture once in my house. Whoa, it was like a whole new environment. I'm not going in there. What did you do to my house? <laughs> I don't recognize it anymore. Uh, so it's terrifying. Things can, new things can be terrifying. Hmm. 
Let me read uh, just a paragraph here from your preface. You say, right or not, wolf dog breeders wouldn't be in the business without buyers drawn to the idea of bonding with a part wild creature, as if surmounting the difficulties of that kind of relationship, as opposed to simply enjoying the easy one with dogs, will fill a great hole in their hearts. And that's why I can't explain wolf dogs' genetics uh, behavior or the difficulty of keeping them without revealing the reasons for my own longing and telling the story of my life with a wolf dog. So there, there, there is that bond and that need and that connection, and I guess some people want a, a more difficult connection and, and, and that yeah. wildness. You know, for me, you know, I had to write this book because I needed to reveal my own longing and the holes in my own heart because that's why I reached out to a wolf dog. I had grown up with dogs. I've loved dogs all my life. And when I encountered the first wolf dog I'd ever laid eyes on, I just was so open and raw to all the mythology that surrounds wolves and wolf dogs. So, for example, uh, you know, this notion, when I met several wolf dog breeders, they said things like, domestic dogs are dumb. Domestication has made dogs dumb. So the best thing to do is to infuse a little of that genetic wildness back in there and put the smarts back in, put the athleticism back in. Well, yes, we've done lots of things to dogs that, you know, genetically that are quite a mess, but the answer to that is not bringing wild genes back into the dog uh, genome. And so for me, this notion of the smarts, I was very attracted to the smarts. Also, you know, I was doing 10 to 15 mile treks and pretty rugged terrain, and I thought, well, you know, what better animal than this athletic wolf dog. Another myth was that, you know, wolf dogs are more protective than quote-unquote regular dogs. And I thought, well, you know, I had just escaped from a pretty scary relationship, and I wanted a protector. So that really appealed to me. Well, it turns out that, you know, wolves don't like conflict. Uh, wolf dogs also would prefer not to have conflict. So if somebody's after you, they're going to hide behind you <laughs> or under the bed. Uh, they don't like that kind of uh, confrontation. So you're in charge. You need to be the dominant one who is basically protecting them and yourself. It's not the other way around. So that was a big myth that, you know, I fell into um, believing that, but it's not true. And, you know, and actually that's a myth that harms wolves because we're seeing so many representations of wolves still uh, that showing them as fearsome, bloodthirsty uh, beasts, which they are not. They are predators, but they are not these bloodthirsty, fierce animals. They're just doing their thing out on the landscape. So for me, these myths that I fell into really came from this vulnerable place that I was in at the time, hmm. seeking a, that kind of companionship. And so I bypassed some you know, wonderful dogs in favor of all, uh, an incredibly powerful creature, Inyo, definitely a beautiful athletic creature, but also extremely difficult. We're going to be talking about that journey you took with uh, Inyo, the reasons why uh, people want these uh, wolf dog hybrids, and uh, uh, you're you're definitely not an you're not a proponent, right? You're 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 saying there's a lot of controversies, and rightly so, in in uh, hybridization. I am yes. I I think that for people who 
profess to love wolves. A lot of people who have wolf dogs really do believe that they, you know, they love wolves, just like I believe that I love wolves. But if you truly love wolves, you don't need them in your house or even a part wolf in your house or in your yard, because it's essentially just a giant prison that you're creating for this animal that has this longing to roam. And I have through these years of research and meeting people all over this country who have uh, wolf dogs, you know, I've, I've seen some real, um, really poignant reasons why different people have these animals. I mean, some want them for power. I've met some pretty aggressive types who use this wolf dog or even some that have pure wolves as, you know, sort of a this icon of the wilderness as a weapon. You know, they've got them chained in the back of their pickup trucks. Uh, you know, this is kind of this powerful, I'm big and I'm bad. Uh, some people want them for prestige. You know, they like owning something that gains them attention or for aesthetic reasons. I mean, even Michael Jackson, he had five Arctic wolves uh, at his Neverland ranch. Essentially, those, those animals are just lawn ornaments because when he was done with them, off they went to a sanctuary, uh, you know, and, and even his tigers. He also had tigers, uh, speaking of more exotics. And frankly, when a lot of people let go of these animals, they're done with them. You know, even Michael Jackson did never send money to help support uh, the animals that he had given up for, for these sanctuaries. And these are nonprofit sanctuaries really running on uh, nickels and dimes. And, you know, and then some people want them for a sense of personal worth. They want to make a, a wild creature love them because they think a dog's love is too easy. That's one of the things I heard the most. It's, it's too easy. Dogs are obsequious, and they, they, you know, they love you if you kick them. You know, well, bless their hearts for loving us because we're a complicated species. <laughs> and frankly, dogs know us better than we, we know ourselves oftentimes. So that reason, you know, seemed to rise to the top. Uh, that was really the cream, that a dog's love comes too easy. They wanted to work on something more difficult. Uh, in fact, Kent Weber, you quote here from uh, Mission Wolf in Colorado, wolves do what they want, dogs ask, what do you want me to do? It's so true. I mean, they're very independent. Wolves and many wolf dogs, uh, the more wolfier wolf dog, there are, there's a whole range of wolf dogs out there. And the more wolfier wolf dogs truly are driven by what they want to do in that moment. And they're not, you can't get in the way of that. It's just part of who they are, and it's not their fault, but people don't understand that, and they think that, you know, as I did, for example, if we're just out in the wilderness as much as possible, I mean, Inyo and I, my gosh, we were out two hours a day, every day, snow, rain, it did not matter the weather, we were running hills, go, go, go. I tell you what, we'd come back home after two hours, I'm exhausted, and she looks at me like, is that it? Are we done? <laughs> Let's go again. So, I mean, inexhaustible amounts of energy. Uh, we are talking with uh, Caridwan uh, Terrell, author of Part Wild, Caught Between the Worlds of Wolves and Dogs. She uh, tells about her life, her need for a uh, more wild uh, uh, companion animal than, than a dog. Uh, and uh, she got that in Inyo, it was uh, half husky, I believe, and half wolf. Um, and uh, her journey over four years with Inyo. And uh, also the science 
uh, trying to track down this idea of a tame versus domesticated. We'll get into that as well. Some very interesting research on foxes in Russia. Uh, Karadwan Terrell, and we'll get into some of her personal stories. She uh, really uh, lays her life bare um, and her need for uh, Inyo. Uh, more coming following a brief break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Ride It Up, hosting Sunset on the Square in St. George, Friday, July 26th at 6 p.m., showing the movie Hook at Sunset and featuring local nonprofit crafts and children's art, held every second and fourth Friday of the month through August. And Utah Festival Opera and Musical Theater in Logan through August 10th, Celebrating Verdi's 200th birthday with Otello, a tale of deceit, conspiracy, and tragedy based on Shakespeare's classic play. Information at utahfestival.org. Today's broadcast of Access Utah is an encore presentation of a show that was previously recorded in December 2012. However, you can still comment on today's presentation at upraccess at gmail.com. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour is Caridwen uh, Terrell. She is a writer of Part Wild, caught between the worlds of wolves and dogs. She talks about her four-year journey with her uh, wolf-dog hybrid uh, Inyo. Also a lot of science here. Getting to the idea of uh, genetic tameness uh, versus uh, other kind of definitions of tameness and domestication, the history of wolves and dogs and their history with the man. And uh, a lot of people's need for something at least part wild. Very interesting. Caridwen Terrell is uh, an associate professor uh, at Concordia College in Oregon uh, right now. Uh, I was very interested in um, this quote from uh, Patricia McConnell, and you're familiar with this, I'm sure. Uh, Patricia McConnell will be very uh, familiar to our listeners because she hosted for uh, several years Calling All Pets, a very popular program here until it ended. Uh, she's, of course, an animal trainer. Uh, Patricia McConnell said she praised your honesty, and she said, uh, though, that she wanted to reach through the pages of the book and, and ask uh, what was she thinking. <laughs> um, and uh, here's your quote from near the end of the book. Writers have to tell hard stories, not just the warm and fuzzy ones, to make our relationship with animals more ethical. I wonder if you could sp- expand on that. You bet. I believe that, you know, there are some just wonderful stories out there about human relationships with animals. Some of them are, you know, all, all positive, all, you know, everything's going beautifully. Uh, maybe there's a little bit of conflict, but, you know, it's rolling along. And, and this story has serious ups and serious downs. And, you know, the, the difficulty of loving a creature so driven by what's inside it at a genetic level that you cannot change with any kind of training. Um, you know, it's just, it's just there for them. For example, um, this, this need to roam, as I mentioned. Also, prey drive. Yes, dogs have prey drive, but wolves and wolf dogs, their prey drive is a lot higher, and they're not able to control it in the way that dogs can control it. Now, the telling a story that has uh, elements of tragedy as well as as funny moments um, really to me I had to put it all out there you know being honest about my own foibles is absolutely critical because we are human beings and we do make mistakes and you know for me 
I couldn't sugarcoat my mistakes. I had to put them right there on the page for readers to see because I don't want people to make the same mistakes I did. Mm. I want people to read my story and say, okay, I, I get that. I understand why dogs and wolves are so different. I, I understand why you know, mixing them up is a, not a good idea. It's not fair to the dog. It's not fair to wolves because, frankly, wolves need all the help they can get. And, and so to understand that complexity of wild and domestic and to ultimately appreciate the miracle that, that dogs and their domestic state represents is so important to me that, that readers understand that. So I felt like telling my story, showing uh, my own mistakes, my ups and my downs, was really important to put out there for readers to experience. You, uh, there's a moving passage uh, where you encounter a, a hybrid named Cochise. This is in uh, in Tucson, I believe. And uh, sort of setting this up, you uh, you had been in an abusive relationship with your, your boyfriend, Eddie. This was back in Texas, which was, I think, kind of mystifying to you. It probably is to, to most women who, who stumble into this. Uh, you'd been a wilderness ranger, <laughs> shot black bears, traveled in Central America, at a certain point in, in your life, you, you ended up in this relationship, and now you'd escaped um, and had to leave a couple of dogs behind. Mm-hmm. And you end up at the, this shelter, and you're drawn to this, this, this hybrid named Cochise. I wonder if you could talk about that. Absolutely. Yes, Cochise was in a, a back room at the pound. He was kind of tucked away because he was not, uh, as I would find out, available for adoption. So he had been in and out of the pound several times. I'd never seen a wolf dog before, and, you know, I, I snuck into this back room where I wasn't supposed to go, and I saw this creature who was really uh, very, the eyes, the, the ears, its whole body posture was so different from any dog I'd ever seen, and he was terrified, and I could see he was wondering why he was in there. It turns out he did have an owner, but that owner had not come to, uh, come to, to claim him. And Cochise had been in and out of the pound. Um, he had, unfortunately, he had uh, bitten uh, people. Uh, he had um, killed pets in the neighborhood. You know, so when I went to the desk in the front and I said, I want to adopt that wolf dog, you know, again, having never laid eyes on a wolf dog before and just being so smitten by his, his beauty and his, just his power, and they told me, no, he will not be adopted out. Either his rightful owner comes to get him or he'll be euthanized, and that'll be the end of it. And I kept going back, and I kept going back. And, you know, I said, look, I, I'm, I'm outside all the time. I said, I think I can give this guy a good home. The answer was still no. And it was a real, it was a real heartbreaker uh, and very sad. And he is not – his situation, Cochise's situation, is not unlike many animals that I have met. Every sanctuary that I have visited, for example, across this country is full with animals like Cochise Mm. living out their lives basically in um, very marginal conditions. The people that own these sanctuaries, you know, the best of them are doing all they can. These are mom and pop operations with very little money who get calls on a daily basis for help please take my animal. I don't know what to do with him. He's eating through the walls. He's, you know, he's 
starting to get more dominant and, and food aggressive and, you know, or won't stay home. You know, I'm terrified that, that he's going to hurt somebody or what have you. And these animals, by, through no fault of their own, have nowhere to go because uh, these sanctuaries often have to say, no, I'm sorry, we're full. We're full. And so Cochise's story really moved me. But I, knowing as little as I did at that time, so ignorant, at that point I was just hooked. I thought, I want a wolf dog. I want a wolf dog. But I want to rescue a wolf dog. And my attempts at rescue fell through. And then a, a, a woman that uh, knew a friend of mine was going to have a litter of wolf dog pups and had been raising wolf dogs for years. And basically she said the magic words. She said, and I, I really, you know, honestly look at that today, and I think, oh, Caridwin, you really fell for it. She said it takes a special person <laughs> to raise a wolf dog. <laughs> it takes a special person. And in that time in my life, boy, did I want to feel special. <laughs> Having just gotten out of this horrible relationship, really frightened that this guy was going to find me, and feeling you know, the self-esteem so low, I thought, mm, maybe this is the thing for me. I can do this. And you know, that was a hook. That was a real hook. And subsequently, through my research, that's something I hear over and over and over again. And in fact, not only a special person, but a person willing to be, quote, alpha, which I discuss in the book, the whole concept of alpha, which is nonsense, totally outdated. And this notion of, you know, I met people who would throw their animals on their backs, put their teeth on their throat and growl at them to establish a kind of uh, sense that, hey, I'm the human, I'm alpha, you will listen to me. And that is so damaging to these animals. It's damaging to dogs when people do it to dogs. It's damaging to wolf dogs when people do it to them. And, you know, people who have worked with wolves, know better. You definitely don't do that. And wild wolves don't do that. They are so tolerant of their young. So, you know, this whole notion of, of dominance and aggression and, you know, saying, I am, I'm top dog, I'm top dog around here and you will listen to me, is, is just a horrid, horrid thing that I've encountered over and over again with people who have these animals. It's very sad. And that's not to say that everyone who has these animals is like that. I have met some exceptions, but they're the exception and not the rule. Hmm. So the, this, this idea of the alpha, alpha dog, you say that's nonsense? What, what is the social structure then? So wolves essentially, their packs are composed of mom, dad, and kids, and could be kids of multiple generations. Um, most do- uh, wolves by the age of two are ready to leave the their home pack their birth pack and strike out on their own to find a mate develop their own pack situation now mom dad and kids uh in a pack situation their mom and dad are extremely tolerant of the kids now wolf pups are precocious they are biting and tearing and crawling over the parents and the uncles and the aunts and pulling on their ears and biting and so on Adult wolves are so loving and so tolerant of this behavior, they do not roll an an animal on its back, do not roll a pup on its back and scare it (laughs) and growl at it and 
put their teeth on the throat. You know, this is, this is um, any time a wild wolf rolls on its back, now this is within a pack. I'm not talking about between packs, two rival packs that might meet. Yes, you might see violence then. But within a home pack, these animals have a vested interest in keeping their members alive. They are kind and tolerant, and when an animal rolls on its back, it's voluntary. That animal has not been thrown on its back. And so when we take some of this sort of this behavior that, that we've learned, and I will say the term alpha and its, its concept, it all came from the 1940s when uh, Rudolf Schenkel was doing studies of captive uh, groups of mostly unrelated wolves thrown together and kept together in captivity. That's a recipe for disaster. So when he saw dominance contests that some of them ended in death, he decided, oh, that must be how wild wolves interact with each other. So we're going to call the winner of that contest, often the survivor, we're going to call that the alpha wolf. And that just must be how they are. Well, that's not true. But unfortunately, it takes a very, very long time for the popular understanding to filter down from the science once it's been critiqued and revised. And, you know, we have, in the dog world, there is a great movement toward more positive training that that is up-to-date with the science, up-to-date with how we understand wolf behavior in the wild, and it's in greater keeping with with kind and sane leadership, because there is a leadership, obviously, right, in a wild wolf pack. Mom and dad are the leaders, but you wouldn't call human parents the alphas and, you know, see them beating their children into submission and call that normal. That's not normal. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So wolf parents don't do that either, and people who have studied wild wolves now understand that. We're talking with Cardoan Terrell, author of Part Wild, Caught Between the Worlds of Wolves and Dogs. Talking about this idea of our needs, some of us have a need for this wildness, and or just feel special, and we'll get into why, what dogs do for us, what we do for dogs. And this interesting question of tameness versus genetic tameness and domesticity, domestication. There have been some interesting uh, experiments and uh, studies in Russia, for example, with foxes. Gerdwin Terrell, her book is Part Wild. Uh, you said that the uh, your friend said the key words uh, take someone special to deal with a, a, a wolf-dog uh, hybrid. At that time of your life, you were uh, had very low self-esteem. That uh, would help you. Also, I believe you wanted a uh, wolf-dog hybrid, uh, something a little more wild to protect you from your uh, boyfriend who... Uh, who you're afraid was going to come after you, follow you. Um, and I wonder if you could uh, follow up a little bit about uh, what Inyo indeed did did for you. Well, for me, she was an incredible wilderness companion. I mean, that that part was was a, a beautiful part of our relationship, was, was being in the wilderness. Incredible athleticism. I mean, thinking about the way that, that a pure wolf is built, they have... You know, we, we call them built-in snowshoes. They have these long, arched toes that allow them to grip, to climb. And Inyo could climb frozen waterfalls where I would need uh, special equipment to do such a thing. She just had built-in equipment. Just incredible in terms of rock climbing, 
I would be up there clinging to this rock. You know, I'm getting the sewing machine leg because, you know, when you're getting nervous, we call it either the, the Elvis leg or the sewing machine leg. When you're up there on the rock and you're afraid to make a move, and here would come Inyo right by me. Bye. <laughs> you know, so just incredible athlete. Um, really, truly remarkable. Our partnership was the most uh, solid and, and strong when we were in the wilderness. That's where she was happiest. And so in terms of that partnership, very strong there. Now, we always had to come back to uh, the city. And at the time, we were living in a pretty strange place, Reno, Nevada. <laughs> you can imagine, uh, you know, I mean, this is the biggest little city in the world, and it never sleeps, and it's, uh, you know, it likes to call itself the biggest little city in the world. And, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a strange place. The, the, the part I loved about it is that you can get out of the city pretty darn quick. So uh, we could get out within five minutes, and like I said, two hours a day, we'd be out running hills, didn't matter the weather, and it was an incredible place for us to be together out there. But living in neighborhoods was, was really tough, and we were evicted five times. At one point, we ended up living in the National Forest out of my Volkswagen van. Ironically, we were living in a place called Dog Valley, <laughs> and we didn't have a place to live because we'd been evicted over and over because of howling. Howling was a big issue. Uh, property destruction was another one. Uh, you know, at, 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 as Inyo matured, her teeth also matured, and she could literally chew through walls. And as much exercise as we got, it was still never enough. And so this howling, uh, property destruction, and then ultimately escapes. So uh, she could get out of anything I constructed for her, and it would become more and more elaborate over time, the kinds of, of structures that I created, and inadvertently probably trained her <laughs> to keep trying to escape. So that's a big mistake on my part. Um, and so, you know, these were things that we had to, to deal with, and uh, we do, you know, eventually find a place on the edge of the desert that's got some open land behind it. And, you know, I'm very thankful for that, that we were able to find that place. But that's only after moving and moving and moving um, over the course of, of a very short period of time. Mm. And I, I don't want to give away too much. Uh, readers read the book, but uh, you know, there's tragedy. There's tragedy here. Yes, it's, there's a lot of uh, definitely ups and downs here and a lot of lessons that are built in through, throughout that I'm learning from this experience and sharing with the reader as I go along. And, you know, I'm taking the reader on this journey with me. And, you know, again, I don't hold anything back. Um, I felt like it was really important to, for readers to, to see all of it and to have their experience um, of this story and hopefully – my my biggest hope is that people would realize that dogs, domestic dogs, are a miracle because domesticity is what allows uh, dogs to live with us so well. I mean, they possess a set of skills that allows them to live with us so beautifully. And I, I raised two uh, pound rescues, two rescue pups uh, alongside Inyo, and it was really interesting for me to see how differently the dogs behaved from Inyo. Now, I had rescued the dogs thinking that uh, 
they would help Inyo sort of get with the program a little bit about what it means to be hanging around the house. <laughs> um, and, you know, essentially she would just look at, at the two dogs, Thelma and Argos are the two dogs in the book, and she would say, you know, if you want to come with me, that's fantastic. Let's go. Uh, but I'm not staying here. And she would climb uh, the enclosure that I had built for her and, and take off. And that was it, leaving the two dogs behind, just sort of like, well, bye. <laughs> so, um, you know, seeing those differences between a part wild creature and a truly domestic creature is, is, is critical. And it's so important because they're, their behavior is so different, and it's different for a specific reason, you know. I mean, dogs are very suited for life with human beings, whereas wolves and many wolf dogs really are not. Hmm. We are going to take another brief break. Uh, we'll be back with Kerduan um, uh, Terrell, author of Part Wild, Caught Between the Worlds of Wolves and Dogs. When we come back, we're going to get into this idea of tameness versus genetic tameness and domestication. Very interesting differences, and it goes uh, to uh, how uh, dogs and humans evolved together while uh, wolves evolved uh, separately, and uh, that's coming following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Festival Opera and Musical Theater in Logan presenting the reading of the revised musical Rex on Wednesday, July 31st at 1 p.m. in the Ellen Eccles Theater. Performed script in hand with no costumes, lighting, or sets. Information at utahfestival.org. And Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, now open Monday through Saturday until 2, with a changing menu of specialty salad, French breakfast pastries with local, seasonal fruits, and lunch sandwiches. Today's broadcast of Access Utah is an encore presentation of a show that was previously recorded in December 2012. However, you can still comment on today's presentation at upraccess at gmail.com. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest is Cardoan Terrell. She is associate professor at Concordia College in Portland, author of a new memoir, Part Wild, Caught Between the Worlds of Wolves and Dogs. It's her story of uh, her journey with a uh, half-wolf, half-husky hybrid named Inyo. And gets into our need for dogs, some people's needs for wolves as well. More wild experience and responsibility. And we're going to be talking about the difference between tameness and uh, genetic tameness. We'll get into that as we uh, go along. Uh, Colonel Montero, uh, in your afterward, you write about your dog Argos, and uh, very movingly, uh, you say, although Argos may be emotionally befuddled, he has great uh, physical gifts, you outline those. When I'm sad, he'll sit beside me and put a tan paw on my shoulder. It's clear he thinks I'm wonderful, which is lucky because I really needed his good opinion when Part Wild came out. I think in, in part because of the, uh, uh, you're very honest, and you admit your mistakes in, in the book. Uh, I think that, that describes what most people need, what they're seeking with, uh, with, with, in a dog. They are. I mean, we're seeking acceptance, right? We're seeking that connection with a creature that we're, we're just longing. I mean, so many of us are, I mean, we're, we're the walking wounded. Many people are, are the walking wounded, and dogs provide a love that oftentimes other humans certainly cannot provide and they they love us they understand us they know us better than they than than we know ourselves sometimes and they can they can read 
our moods and our emotions. They study our behavior, and it's a it's a beautiful partnership. It certainly can be. Uh, for me, Argos is. I'm so thankful for him. You know, I will never take domestication for granted again. I can tell you that. <laughs> mm. You say that uh, in science, say that dogs and humans co-evolved, influencing and changing each other, and that's something we don't think about much. At least I don't. Uh, you know, think about the other side. Dogs evolved with humans and changed, therefore. But humans perhaps were influenced by dogs that they were co-evolving with us? Absolutely. I mean, you know, the scientific jury is, is still out on the where, the when, and the how of domestication, but there are many, many theories and, you know, some excellent theories, some very fascinating theories. And the fact that, that dogs have influenced how, how we live our lives, I mean, we have only recently, within the last 250 years, developed the variety of breeds that we currently have. Uh, before that, there, we didn't have that kind of variety, but we are really quickly uh, changing with our dogs. And, you know, even now we're still evolving with our dogs. We're still evolving that relationship and understanding it, trying to figure out better ways to improve that relationship. And, you know, one of the things that has helped us to understand dogs is the study of wolves, but some of that has been fraught, unfortunately, with misinformation. And, you know, dogs have much to teach us about, you know, getting along with one another, about love, about healing. Being with, with my dogs is very, very healing for me. And I think that, you know, traveling as I have and seeing how many of uh, how many wolf dogs, for example, are in captivity? It's a. It's been a real heartbreaker for me because I think people were seeking a similar bond with their dog, but with a creature as I did, with a creature who had a different agenda, through no fault of their own. These animals cannot help that because of that wildness, you know. And there are between three hundred thousand and five hundred thousand wolf dogs in the United States alone, and you know some fifteen hundred licensed pure wolves in captivity and i tell you untold numbers of unlicensed pure wolves owned by people and they're just flying under the radar because the laws are a tangled mess in this country but you know the bottom line of all those figures is that there are more wolves and wolf dogs in captivity than there are wild wolves in all of north america there's something deeply troubling about this you know we really i believe we really need to see wolves for the creatures that they are they're not our enemies but you know they're not our friends either they are their own being and they have their own lives out there and they need for human beings to you know get out of their way and and make a way for them on the landscape to do their to do their thing and coexist with them which is very tough and i go into that a little bit in the book and there are lots of an amazing uh, opportunities for for coexistence that we're not really tapping into yet, but dogs are really the appropriate species for us to have this bond with because they have it's been thousands of years for them to come this far in their domesticity, living with people so well as they do. That doesn't mean that some dogs don't have problems. Certainly they do, but but largely they are the appropriate companion animal for people, not wolves or wolf dogs. You say that uh, the difference, genetic difference, between wolves and dogs is two-tenths of one percent difference in the mitochondrial DNA, and yet, you know, a lot of differences. We, we understand that. Uh, I wonder if you could talk a bit about 
this idea of tameness versus genetic tameness as it relates to this uh, study of foxes in Russia. Absolutely. So when I traveled to, to Russia to, to see this experiment with the silver fox, it's been going on now for 55 years. We're on the 55th year of it, and it's, it's started uh, so long ago, and it's been such an involved experiment to understand, ultimately try to understand the genetic mechanisms involved in domestication. And uh, Dmitry Balayev, a Russian geneticist, was interested in understanding uh, how domestication came about and, again, those genetic mechanisms involved in it. And tame, a tame animal, it's a very important distinction between tame and genetically tame. So a person can tame a wild animal that, despite its genetic programming to the contrary, can learn, and this is a learned behavior, not a genetic behavior, can learn to tolerate human contact and even be friendly and, and uh, toward people. But a tame animal won't necessarily display that friendly behavior reliably and certainly cannot pass on that tame behavior, that friendly behavior to its offspring. So a genetically tame animal is a very different creature. And, and these foxes, over the course of very careful selective breeding, the uh, Russian geneticists have created a population of what we call genetically tame animals, which is to say that they've been selected over multiple generations. Only the very tamest animals have then been bred again um, so that this friendliness is truly passed on to the next generation. Uh, and so you get when I was there, it was just incredible, animals, these foxes, that long for human attention. They want to be touched and petted and have their bellies rubbed. Now, all within a range, I should say, because even the tamest of the tame didn't necessarily want to be cuddled, but we don't know how they could be because they have never lived um, except for a very small handful, with people. These are animals that are living in very sad conditions. They live in three-by-three three wire cubes with no stimulation of any kind and very, very minimal human contact. And the, the reason for the minimal human contact is to make sure that the scientists can verify that it is truly the genetics operating and creating that friendly behavior toward humans and not a learned behavior toward humans. But I have to say it, was a, it broke my heart to see these foxes, thousands of them, whining and moaning from these three-by-three three wire cubes. It's, it's, it's extremely sad, you know, to see that. I mean, what lengths we will go to understand certain processes Many benefits will come out of this experiment, but it's also very tough to, to see this. Um, we don't know if these foxes are truly domestic because they haven't been given the chance to demonstrate that, because domesticity requires that that animal then be socialized as, as a puppy um, and that a whole population be living with people in the way that a dog would live with people. These are canines that have been measured specifically against the um, – the whole list of, of dog capabilities and behaviors toward people. And we don't know that. They haven't been tested yet. 
So they're they're in between genetically tame and and domestic. They are in between. Yeah. They are in between, and you know it's it, the, it's a holding pattern. This experiment is in a holding pattern due to lack of money, mm-hmm. and you know any dog trainers out there who <laughs> want to make their career. <laughs> They can see, you know, it would be wonderful to get those animals out of those cages. I can tell you that. Mm. Uh, by the way, uh, uh, maybe people can contact you through uh, myurbanwild.com. I think that's your website. Absolutely. If, if listeners want to help want out here. video and photographs from Part Wild, they can go to my website. We're just uh, coming down just a couple of minutes left. Um, this quote from The Little Prince is very appropriate. That's why you have it <laughs> at the front of your book. Uh, Antoine de Saint-Exupéry says, you become responsible forever for that which you have tamed. Yes. Yes, that is a powerful guiding principle. It's a guiding principle of that book, and it's a guiding principle of, of my life. That, that is, we have to see things all the way through, and it's very, very tough. Um, but that kind of responsibility we, we take this on uh, when we take in a creature. We are accountable when we take the life of another creature into our own hands without fully understanding the consequences and responsibilities that come with that life. And, you know, if it's one thing for me that, that I take away from this, it's something that, you know, Martin Luther said. And, you know, he said the dog is the most faithful animal, and it might be held in great worth if it were not so common. And he was right. He was right. We need to not take our dogs for granted, and honestly, not take wolves for granted either, because they do have a very important place on the landscape. Just a, a brief minute left. How how to stop the the hybridization? These you know the breeding, as you point out, uh, wouldn't happen if if a lot of people didn't demand it. I think if the more people know what's really happening. Uh, to these animals. I think that education is everything. Uh, I think that will help a lot. The laws in this country are a tangled mess, and, you know, state to state, all different, county to county, all different. And, you know, what we have to realize is that our own wounded hearts cannot be healed. We cannot fill those holes by stealing the soul of another creature. We can't do that. These creatures are their own beings, and to keep them in prison is not an appropriate way to express your love for a wolf. So I think the more people understand, the better they'll behave. We'll leave it there. Part Wild, Cop Between the Worlds of Wolves and Dogs, is the memoir. Kurdwan Terrell is the author. Uh, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. And again, myurbanwild.com is the the website. For producer Shalane Smith-Needham, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks for listening. Utah Public Radio presents StoryCorps, an oral history project in conjunction with the National Library of Congress, recorded in May of 2013 in St. George. My name is Janine Vanderbruggen. I am almost 70 years old. I am speaking with my cousin, Teresa Orton. My name is Teresa Orton. I am 63 years old, and we are here in St. George, Utah. So do you remember how we actually got together? Because, you know, we were doing all these things and didn't know anything about each other. I knew you lived here. As you mentioned one day, we were asked to be on the Foremaster Family Reunion Committee, 
And then we started talking about the Daughters of Utah Pioneers. And I just remember looking at you while we were working, and I just said, we need a new director at the Macquarie Memorial Museum here in St. George. And you weren't working. That's right. It was <laughs> and so working. in your moment of insanity, you said you would love to. <laughs> it's uh, been a wonderful place to work together. Tell me what you have thought about working with the museum. I remember the museum when I was growing up. My dad tells me stories about how the museum was such a focal point of the community. My perception of family history and learning about the struggles of my pioneer ancestors, that has always been something of interest to me. And I went in there with new eyes and looked at the pictures, and it was like old homework. Here I'm seeing my great-great-grandfather and great-great-grandmother's pictures on the wall. There's rooms dedicated to them on both sides, my mother's side, my father's side. And then it began to really sink into me how I'm part of the beginning of St. George. I'm a fourth generation of the original pioneers. To this day, I can walk and look at some of those same buildings. That's a huge impact. You see the things they use, their written histories, their children. That's when it became more of a personal importance to me and my love for the museum, and it just enhanced my belief in the importance of what it's for, keeping and maintaining these histories and and learning a lot more about what my family went through and how they got here and their personal struggles. But it's interesting to hear you talk about how you've learned about them, even though you lived here as a child. Mm -hmm. And when I came, it was 2005, I've been here six months. Aunt Barbara says, you have to join Daughters of Utah Pioneers. And I just really wasn't too interested in it. And I had never, ever been inside. And when I walked in and saw those pictures of those ancestors, and we have the same families that are there, identical, and then I have my mother's side of the family, and I just felt like when I walked in there that they're all looking at me saying, welcome home. And every time I walk in that building, I thought, you know, I'm going to have a great day because there's not one thing that causes me to have as many problems as what they had just to survive. Exactly. I mean, the conveniences, having running water, having an automobile, having air conditioning. And when I read about their struggles to raise those first crops and have them burn, and practically starving to death for two or three years and living in their wagons. I thought, life is good. There is not a thing that I can complain about when I'm reminded of what they went through and they persevered and stayed there. And it's just become a passion with me now to to make people aware of those memories and that we can't forget their struggles makes you so appreciate what they had to to survive and what they had to go through just to get here. And they came on faith, hope and faith, and trying to get the community started and flourishing and keep people here. That's what the museum has done for me. It's it's given me a purpose to be Mm -hmm. here and, and to pass on that heritage. It's been so much fun for me to get acquainted with you, to see your skills. I just can't tell you how much I appreciate all that you do. I think it's been a a very positive learning experience for me. I see your passion. I mean, you're a great example to me, your ability to reach out to the community, to acquaint them with the thing that we're most passionate about, which is our family history. These interviews were recorded at StoryCorps, a national initiative to record and collect stories of everyday people. Excerpts were selected and produced by Utah Public Radio.
Support for StoryCorps on Utah Public Radio comes from Dixie Regional Medical Center, located on two campuses in St. George, serving southwestern Arizona, southeastern Nevada, and southern Utah. Information at dixieregional.org. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 89.5 Logan, KUSK HD1 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD1 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD1 88.7 Moab, and KUSU FM HD1 91.5 Logan. look at the sinister side of the natural world. Today on the Zesty Garden, I interview author Amy Stewart as she uncovers more than 100 of our worst insect enemies in her book, Wicked Bugs, The Louse That Conquered Napoleon's Army and Other Diabolical Insects. From the world's most painful hornet that can kill humans but gets cooked to death when it attacks honeybees, the millipedes that stop traffic, to corn earworms that have quickly adapted and outsmarted farmers and their control methods, Wicked Bugs tells the stories of bugs gone wild. It's a mixture of history, science, murder,